Hello everyone and welcome to the 343 Football Podcast. It is our second episode of the podcast today. And joining me again is a full compliment, same as last week. We've got Ali. Hi. We've got Daud. Hello. We've got Qudama. Hello. And myself, Jaffa. Now, it was an interesting weekend. A lot of things happened across Europe and we'll dive straight in. And we'll start at the Etihad where all the pre-match talk was about which striker does Liverpool go uh, start with. And Klopp showed he cares not one iota as he started both Firmino and Diego Jota now. It was 1-1, a very tightly contested game. Ali, I'll come to you on this one. How did you think the game unfolded from a tactical perspective? Did Klopp's uh, selection um, kind of unsettle Liverpool because they weren't used to that sort of lineup, or was it actually all right as uh, the way you saw the game? Well, first of all, this game is known as the James Milner derby <laughs> or the Raheem Sterling derby. Uh, tactically, what Klopp should have done is he should have stuck with something which he's more familiar with instead of messing around with the team. It's a big fixture. If he got a win at the Etihad, that would have been a big thing. I can't remember the last time Liverpool won there. I can't either, to be honest. I think it's uh, there's been a trend with the Liverpool-Man City games where it seems to be the home side always wins, Yeah, it? Yeah, no, I yeah. totally agree with you there. Um, I remember years ago going from Martin Skrull scoring an offside, offside goal, uh, Raheem Sterling scoring another offside goal. It's been going back and forth at the Etihad. It looks like Liverpool always going to win at Anfield. Man City going to win at the Etihad. So you're saying it's evened out now because of VAR? No, I'm not that, saying the that. The offside goals have not played a part in one team winning than another. It was a weird game. Like uh, In the second half, it seems like both teams just kind of walked into each other's dressing rooms at half-time and said, you know what, lads, we'll settle for a point. I think uh, there, was, there seemed to be moments, like even in the 80th minute, where you felt like a goal might come and someone was going to grab a winner, but it never seemed like any of the teams wanted to put it into that higher gear to like push for the goal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people usually use the expression a game of two halves to talk about one side dominating one half and the other dominating another half. But it, it was a game of two halves, more about the approaches where both sides were... It was kind of an ign- ignoring the midfield at the very beginning. It was a 4-2-4, it felt like, for both sides. Where Liverpool's front four were there, everyone pressing high up, no midfield, just go straight there and try and get some shots on goal. Obviously, uh, there was a p- uh, two penalties in the half. Now, for me... When you talk about Liverpool against Man City, you want to see a high-level octane football. Like, do you remember the 2-1 victory for Man City? I think it was in the season where they got the 100 points. Where yeah. Sané and Aguero scored. Yeah. That was almost like the pinnacle of that rivalry. With that stone And the quality of football. Line, yeah. yeah. Insane game. This game, I mean, I know that the lack of crowds have kind of watered down the occasion already, but you thought that at least the quality of the football would be there. And it just, uh, I think I agree with them. I feel like both sides were just like, you know, a point is good enough for us and we'll head into the international break with minimising the injury risk, really. Yeah, I think that's what both coaches get I think the pinnacle was the 2018 uh, Liverpool 4-3. That was uh, riveting, that match. No, that that was in Champions League. That 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 was was when Van Dijk just joined Liverpool. And what happened was... Liverpool were blowing Man City out of the way, then Man City he came with a comeback, uh, and yeah. Aguero misses at Anfield yet again. Yeah, to me, yeah, it was nearly 4-4 as well. Yeah, I would say, I remember watching that match, I was thinking, damn, now this is the dawn of these two teams are going to be fighting again for the Premier League for the next couple of seasons. And yeah. I think Liverpool made a statement then, obviously they were quite unlucky not to win that year, but yeah. No, I feel like both teams seem to struggle from... Well, not struggle, but showed that they weren't playing at full strength. Like both City and uh, Liverpool had some uh, key players missing, but also uh, like the star players that did play didn't really shine that night. And uh, Kevin De Bruyne was really off the ball. I don't know what you guys made of his performance. Oh, no, it's probably the worst I've seen him in a City shirt. To be I honest, I thought he had a decent match. 
overall, obviously, no, yeah, the, nothing the, was coming off for him. That was the only thing. But he, he, he was De Bruyne. He was trying really hard. I think the penalty miss, I kept, I, in my head, I kept blaming it uh, on the wet conditions. And I was thinking, oh, he must have slipped. He must have slipped. I think it was just an off day for him, wasn't it? Like, it, there there was no slip or even like a little oh, stride I mean, with his other foot. I his, still saw uh, some of the patented uh, trademark De Bruyne through balls and the, the cut across that he does all the time that yeah. puts a player on a tap in. But none of them came on. There was, overall, well, he definitely struggled in the game. You, you know Gabriel when De Bruyne just feels unplayable and takes and he seizes yeah. the game. Yeah. I didn't see that side of him on, well, on Sunday. Gabriel Jesus, uh, that, that was an assist from De Bruyne. Was it? Yeah, he, he passed it into him, and then obviously that that absolute sweet touch that it, what people say uh, if he meant it or not. No, De Bruyne had know. a good game. He had a really good game. He just screwed up in a penalty. My energy went from oh zero to hundred when Liverpool scored. Then my energy got drained out down again. I was like, what the heck? Yeah, how did you like? Uh, were you happy with the uh, the point? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a point from the Etihad. Let's be honest. Yeah, you know Manchester City. It, are one of the best teams in the world. I'm happy taking a point back and when we play them in Anfield later on next year, you know, hopefully we'll beat them then. The worst, best case scenario is you taking a point from, from yeah. the City Stadium. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, Klopp's played a system of front four with Coutinho, Salah, Firmino, Mane before and they didn't really gel before. So I'm quite surprised he's done it again. So it was a bit of a risk, wasn't it? But yeah. then isn't look at your bench and look at... Um, what you guys usually play, and the the players that are out at the moment, Fabinho, you know, he's a pivotal point for you guys. Um, Thiago's out also as well. I'm guessing he would have been like a Fabinho type of role, trying to do what he does as well. Um, and then obviously you've got the legs of um, Chamberlain, he's out as well. So like I understand why Klopp did it. Yeah. And, um, I do think the numbers missing midfield were definitely the reason he chose that formation because yeah. you'd like to think mm-hmm. that if Fabinho was available, I don't think he would have deviated from the four three three. No, to, the w- the way that Fabinho dominates certain games, like last year, he remember the one where he scored, and he absolutely dominated. Yeah, I was wrong watching that field. game. It was it was pretty yeah. nuts. So for me, it's it, I agree with Dowd. I think the the key players missing for Liverpool kind of forced Klopp's hand in the form of Jota as well. Couldn't really be ignored. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the end, I actually don't think it was too detrimental. I think no. If you think about that game as an end of season April fixture where the winner takes the title. I think Liverpool's setup might have been all right. It's just their reproach and mentality because it's so early in the season and with COVID and the international break coming up, I kind of think it dictated a little bit yeah. what both managers went for towards mm-hmm. the end of the game. Half of Liverpool's team's gone. Van Dijk's gone. Alexander-Arnold's injured. You've got Fabinho who's injured. Thiago obviously recovering, but he's Joe still Gomez injured. is not up yeah. to standard as well. It was interesting to yeah. see Klopp Very suspect. Uh, Guardiola mentioned, the, uh, again, complaining about the five substitutions and we're seeing teams like players have fallen like but I think that's interesting. That like from from a Liverpool fan, that's not good. But from a fan of football, you know, it's wide open. Now people are gonna be talking about Spurs or Leicester or Southampton yeah. uh, when they beat Newcastle, the Alan Shearer derby. You know, they were top for for a moment. That's never happened. Yeah, but, I think. Sorry to yeah. cut you off, Dad, but I think I think that was definitely another aspect of the game as to why the second half was so dull. I think players already just a bit out of breath. <laughs> like they're just tired. They've played yeah. so many games now. Champions League three weeks in a row. They're like, forget just, this, man. Get me off this pitch right now. So obviously yeah. they were complaining about that. Both Klopp and Pep were equally complaining about how their matches in the Champions League and in Europe, and they're not getting enough rest in between that. And obviously playing even earlier in the day, and they're not like um, accounting for the rest that the players will need. Um, and obviously Oli came out as well. He he was yeah. uh, very vocal about it, but. It's interesting because I know you were saying 
it leaves it wide open. But as a fan of Liverpool, would you not want your team to be rested and be in the most fighting fit condition to go and get those results? Or are you more interested in just football and seeing, actually, you know what, teams are a little bit more tired, a bit more lackadaisical, and someone, even in their bench, will probably shine because they're not playing as much football. Um, and they probably have a bit more stamina, you know, the drive to uh, actually do something that the other players might not, you know, might be a bit more tired to actually to push that extra level. Well, last season when I watched Liverpool dominate the league, <laughs> literally dominate everyone, it, it was getting a bit boring, you know. Um, we never had any great moments. Those moments were taken away with us from COVID. And, you know, there's been some iconic moments when Aguero scored his late win against QPR. You've had... Yeah, You've had Man City do that last few times. You've had the special story of Leicester City. You know, it's it's like the beautiful story behind yeah. winning the league title. You know, imagine win winning the Premier League without your your main centre back. The arguably the best centre back in the world. You know, yeah, come, come back the, from that. It's like an underdog. You're not addressing the the tightness aspect. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's that challenge. But you would know. you not agree that the the Premier League could do the little uh, tidbits of Actually, you know what? Um, these guys have been playing in in uh, the, during the week. Uh, let's give them the late kickoff and let's give them an extra oh, day. Absolutely, can. Do you know what I mean? We'll we'll get onto that debate later on. Uh, but I do want to touch on your point there with how exciting the league is when you're getting predictable results. So the next one we'll go to is to the Emirates, where the Gunners were in good spirits, having won their first game at Old Trafford in 14 years, only for Villa to come to town and spoil the party. So three a three <laughs> 0 victory for Aston Villa. That's that's quite significant. And I'll give you a stat for on this one where. Arsenal haven't scored a goal in open play for four league games. Now, Arteta coming in was seen as a positive move. They've now won a trophy and I believe they won the Community Shield as well. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, his style has kind of... Arsenal's identity was always about exciting attack, leaky defences. It seems to have gone the other way and now fans are quite disgruntled with what they're watching. Do you believe that Arteta needs to change approach a little bit to actually excite the fans and actually you know take the front foot in matches as well yeah 100% I think at clubs like Arsenal results are one thing but the style of play is another the team is like you say expected to almost turn up and play the same way every week and get results get results playing that way so it's not just enough for the fans to see their like team doing well and uh, yeah like as well he came in and they were known to have a bit of a comical defence and with like errors every week with uh, Mustafi and Louise and it seems like he made that his priority to fix and he's almost done I don't want to say too good a job because that sounds like a cliche you know pund- punditry line that uh, uh, Townsend would say but he, <laughs> he's really like emphasised th- um, the def- their defensive stability to the point where they're just putting men behind the ball and it looks like their defence is sorted but really it's, it's hard to concede when you, you're playing yeah. that uh, conservatively I mean they have an inter- for me they have an interesting tactical profile because yes there's a defensive facility that seems to be the focus but they also like to play out from the back which equals higher risk Yeah. like um, there was a Europa League I think where they played against Rapid Vienna and they conceded in that manner where Leno couldn't pass it out correctly yeah. so y- you've got a team there that's caught between I don't want to say caught between two styles but Arteta is trying to t- take total domination of a game from a possession point of view and from a defensive point of view and it, it, against certain teams like against Man United away, that was almost like the perfect approach nullified everything Man United had to offer they got the penalty they, were, they weren't even great in that game they just got the penalty they controlled what they needed to control and they won that match against Aston Villa it, to be honest and this is my take I actually think that Aston Villa not only were the tactics better on the night but they've actually got more dangerous players when yeah, you think about 100%. Grealish when you think about McGinn and Ross Barkley their dynamism and the way that they took the initiative Watkins, Arsenal didn't have anything in response yeah I mean that front 
three or four, like however many it is now, is is, is flying. Grealish honestly is without a shadow of doubt the best player outside of your conventional top six. And I think there's a couple of squads where if he was to move to them, might even be their best player. So he's an unreal talent. Ross Barkley looks like he's found the love for football again after being really inconsistent at Chelsea. And I would agree with you. I think when you compare the attack that Aston Villa have to Arsenal, there's an argument to be made that they yeah. actually have recruited more uh, cleverly and like they've got the better players. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into a proper debate about Ross Barkley later on because he's definitely an interesting player to have a look at at the moment. And uh, just on that Grealish point, Ali, do you agree with Khudama that could Grealish, for example, start for every single team in the top six? It depends what system the manager plays in, but um, any top six team would take him. I don't, think, shout. I don't think he could, he could get into Liverpool, though. Shakiri is that yeah, Grealish for him. It's, 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 it's not that. It just Maybe. depends what system it is and what coach it is. But if you're saying if he's a quality player, then yeah, you could you could go to Manchester United easily because you know you see how terrible they are. No, but like <laughs> you, you could, could go to Arsenal he's easy. A, he's a, he's look, a slinky type of player. He he could play for Man no, United. But, he could play for Tottenham. But he he, work, he works hard. He could even play for Man City. He, he's a very complete attacker, isn't he? Uh, to be honest, I didn't think he had too much pace about him. But watching him running down that left flank uh, oh, yesterday, yeah, 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 he really seems a lot quicker than I first anticipated. And obviously the strength. Did you see the way he absolutely bullied Bellerin yeah. for that it's, third goal? It's just not that he's he's playing for the badge. That's the team he supports. I think that's a, yeah, it's a, it's you a know, good point. I remember the first time I've ever ever watched Grealish play was against Liverpool FA Cup semi final. Took Liverpool apart with Ben Teke up front. Yeah, he was and always that wonder kid, wasn't he? And he came into the ranks really early, so he he had like an adjustment period. And I think when they went down, that probably benefited his game a lot to learn a bit more of his trade in the Championship as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree with that. But he had a lot of pressure of him as well at a young age. Yeah, he's not he's not old. You're right. People yeah. need to remember that. You say he's a complete uh, attacker, but he's also really almost a complete footballer in that his like because he's been playing from such a young age and because he's a local club, like you say, Ali, that uh, he galvanizes the team when he's on the pitch. He's he's their talisman. He represents not only the club but the city. He's just indispensable to, to Aston Villa, and he's he's backing it up with the numbers. Reminds me a bit of uh, Lascelles when he was uh, you know at the peak of his Newcastle career. He seemed to just like elevate everyone's level on the pitch because of what he represented to the club you know like battled for the badge and Grealish is yeah I I do like that I think in in an ideal world I would love for every single team in the Premier League to have a homegrown player be their leader and be their best player obviously it's uh, a difficult thing to have but I think it would have a lot lot more back in the day didn't you it would add a lot of character to the league there's quite a lot now you look at Trent for Liverpool Foden for City he's not obviously their main player now but he's still got the potential to be a homegrown legend for the club not to put too much pressure on his shoulders. You've got Rashford there. Yeah, but Rashford. Not, Harry Kane the top as well. Yeah. I'll say Harry Kane, yeah. But and there's more outside the top the top six as well. I mean, you got uh, Newcastle with the long staffs. Obviously, they're not on the same level, but there, there seems to be a lot more homegrown. Because re- like, obviously, the transfer market now, now everything's ridiculous. One right? team that has a player like that is Southampton with J- uh, James Ward Prowse. Exactly, and let's yeah. touch on them very briefly because on Friday night, they went top of the league. Now, that was very brief, and uh, I did enjoy their Stop the Count meme that the Twitter account put out, uh, you know, in light of the election. thought it was a nice way to seize on a moment to go viral. <laughs> but, Dowd, I do want to ask you with Southampton, how high up the table do you think they can finish? Or, or is this team not necessarily a contender for the league, but can they threaten the Champions League positions? No, I don't think they can. I, I think they're playing really good football, but it might be a momentum thing. And you see it a lot throughout the years. Um, the way they are playing football, though, it's definitely um, hard for the teams to break down. They're playing very fluid one-two football, bringing in a lot of the wing backs. You know, actually uh, utilizing Shea Adams. Shea Adams is 
is a you know actually shown he's a very technical but also quite aggressive type of player in terms of physicality um and that actually complements uh, Danny Ings really well yeah i mean th- there's a lot of aggression in that side i haven't watched that uh, game as a newcastle fan um it was really really depressing how easily they would outmuscle us tackle us and not and then when i say that not in the middle of the park in the final third for them mm-hmm. so it was for example, I looked at the stats after the match. Uh, Musa Gineppo had more tackles than an entire back line. That's, oh, yeah. that's, that's a winger. That's <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, it's yeah, incredible. He's working yeah. hard for it. Like, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And he's playing well. And he, look at their, look at their uh, midfield uh, four. Um, James Ward-Prowse, he, you know, he's, he's quite physical. Oriel uh, Rom- uh, Romu, um, Musa Gineppo, they're all really strong physical players. Yeah. Yet th- he's getting the best out of them technically. And I think exactly. that's the difference. Like, what I want to say is there's a big difference between Newcastle and Southampton. Newcastle have Steve Bruce as a coach. Yeah. Then you look at who you have on the other side. You have Hasselhuttle, coach RB Leipzig, coach in the Champions League, help RB Leipzig get second in the debut season in the Bundesliga. He's an established coach. And I think the, the team is based on him. You know, yeah. he's a hard-working person. Yeah. Because St- Steve Bruce, he's he's a bit lazy, and I think sometimes when I it comes mean, to football, I mean yeah. that's not a nice way to talk about. No, it, it's a truth though. If you <laughs> if, if 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 you look at football teams, the the manager kind of like replicates it. So if you look at Jurgen Klopp, for example, he, he's a hard work worker. Oh, so you're saying yeah. like the manager's touchline demeanor, yeah, uh, kind of goes into the team and the yeah, way they play, basically. I wouldn't necessarily do, do agree with that. that? I, I do. Uh, I kind of see what you. I actually agree with your examples that you're giving. Yeah. But I don't agree with that as an overall statement because you can get really casual laid-back managers who won't even get up the pitch once, and their team's absolutely wiping the floor with the other team. It can happen. Yeah, but if you, yeah. I'll give you another example. Jose Mourinho, half his teams are dirty pieces of shit. You know, you, <laughs> you, you have Ramos in there. You you you'll have some piece of shit there. Just want to put a dirty tackle in, and that's what Mourinho is trying to put in their spares right now. Yeah, that's you, true. I mean, he, he came that? out and said it in an interviews, to be fair to him. Yeah. So he's, well, I mean, it, it's yeah. on the documentary as well. He keeps on yeah. telling uh, Tottenham players, you're too nice, you're too nice, you need to be dickheads. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. Honestly, every single episode is just him basically saying, stop being so nice, like, start like, bullying the players. And I think Hasenhutl uh, has got that perfectly right with his team. Yeah. I, I'll tell you what, though. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, Kurodama. Right. Um, if, I, if I'm honest with you, it... Well, 24 hours about to say what the heck is it crazy let's move to Kodama's point I must have uh, tripped you up but I was going to say is I think comparing Hassan Hull and Steve Bruce I know they just played so we're talking about those two teams and as a Newcastle fan I'd rather not but it, it's a, it's almost an insult to Hassan Hull to discuss them I think Southampton yeah they were better than us on the night but they've also been more impressive than most of the teams they've played so far they, they, Hassan Hull seems to get the the best or seems to best his opposition tactically almost every game he plays, exception you know being the nine nil last year. But since then, I think they're like they've been almost top five quality for a year now. If you look at the table yeah. since that since that nine. I mean, it's it's quite ironic that you mentioned about how how much better Hassan was than Bruce, considering Bruce did the double over Hassan Hutel last season. It is, yeah. And yeah. this is Hassan Hutel's first win against Newcastle, and I think fourth or third time facing them. So it's a really well, it's a funny yeah. game like that though. But <laughs> on paper though, Hassan Hutel has got a, a better team. Uh, his his I back disagree. three, I his back three are tall, physical, ball playing defenders, perfect for the uh, modern setup of the game, and I, I, I just think it's taken him this long to get him. Jack Stevens, for example, I wouldn't want any of um, yeah. like him over any of our defenders. 
And yeah, to be honest, maybe Yannick Vestergaard because I like um, his like he's right. so tall. Armstrong from them either like. Uh, Armstrong, I wouldn't have. Yeah, yeah. Like Ali says, Hassan Hüttel is just that good a manager, and he's got them playing unbelievably now. And maybe Champions League is a bit out of sight, but I genuinely wouldn't be surprised if they do end up there. Right, I remember what the battle was saying. Um, <laughs> right, if you look, if you look at the transfer policy between both teams, look how great Southampton were, and you compare Newcastle. Over the last couple of years, do you not think that makes a difference as well? Of course. But yeah, I mean, Theo, uh, Theo Walker for £10 million, I'd, I, I thought that was more of a token uh, signing, uh, to be honest with you. They've got Nathan Redmond and uh, Musa Janepo. Bring the local lad home. Yeah, but yeah. they also yeah. have Oberfemi, do you know what I mean? I'll, um, I'll be honest, if that was a token signing, that was a good token signing because he yeah. really, really troubled Newcastle on Friday. Yeah, he was great. Sure, Tails, you know, it's not just about playing a game, it's also about making money sometimes, dude. Yeah, I mean, I'll say this, and I want it to go on record that Michael Overfemi will become someone really, really good. Um, I would say even half as good as Rashford. So I'll say, you know, a season 15 goal All a right. season. So th- there's your first 3 for 3 football podcast prediction. Michael <laughs> Overfemi will be a very good player, so that's one to watch. Uh, so I think Rashford. that one will be, uh, you know... Not as good as Rashford, uh, but like, yeah... That'll conclude our Premier League review for this weekend. So let's uh, go over to some of the European games that happened. There was quite a lot of exciting fixtures and we'll first start in Germany. So we'll go over to Munich where Haaland, one thing to avoid, another awkward interview, decided just to score the one goal this time in a (laughs) 3-2 defeat against Bayern Munich. Now, this was a home match for Borussia Dortmund and you'd think that for for, for them to be able to topple Bayern, which is an insurmountable task in itself, they have to win this game, don't they? So Mm -hmm. uh, how consequential is this three defeat going to be, do you think? Well, we said it in the, uh, a few earlier podcasts that this Bayern, this Borussia Dortmund team is very impressive. And, you know, with a bit of luck, they could go all the way. But, like, realistically, and when you talk about uh, their opposition, Bayern Munich are just on a different planet, let alone a different level. Like, I watched the game, and it was... They were competitive. They kept up with Bayern. Probably one of the toughest fixtures that Bayern Munich have actually had in, in a long time, barring that, like, uh, freak lost to uh, Hoffenheim, and uh, was Hoffenheim? Yeah, it was Hoffenheim. Yeah, the four-one defeat. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they pressed them well. They created chances. You know, you said Haaland only scored the one, but he genuinely could have had a hat trick. And I think it really boils down to one difference between the two teams, and that is Robert Lewandowski. Lewandowski. <laughs> that man is just insane. Absolutely one of the most lethal finishers I've ever seen yeah. ever to grace yeah. a pitch. I mean, I'm with I'm with you on it because I almost want to sit here and say something like you know. Dortmund just don't have enough or Lucien Favre isn't the right tactical manager like he plays pretty football and maybe he just doesn't have that ruthless streak to take them to the next level but when you talk about Bayern Munich it just feels like whoever they face up against they're going to come out winners at the moment uh, Lewandowski in the form of his life um, it's just like it's innate to him yeah like, it, he knows where the goal is he knows how to get the ball yeah. in the goal not to and Hansi Flick as well there seems to be some sort of lucky charm about him oh, well lucky charm is probably doing him a disservice but he just—he seems almost like I have this aura where can you actually get the better of him? Yeah, he's got the winning touch, right? Like yeah. he's just—he's got the Midas touch, so to speak. And uh, everything about that team now is just in the right place, uh, like right place, right time. Everything's clicking. The manager, the players, like they've got the perfect profile of young talent and the experienced the veterans, players. They've got yeah. the perfect balance of strength and speed and ta- mm-hmm. like uh, technique and, they, and tactics. They're just unstoppable. Yeah, that, I, mean, I agree with. Sorry, interrupt you there. What I want to say is, if the fans were in the stadium, would have made a big difference or not? Oh, 100%. Th- think oh, about the yellow wall. Yeah, think 100%. about 80,000 crazy Dortmund fans there. You know, it's it's going to make a difference. 100%, yeah. Do you know what I think? It's a shame. Guerrero is playing the um, time of his life, though. He's like, he's playing 
absolutely amazing. I've always liked Rafael Guerrero. Five ten, really, really good. I think a lot of buying, uh, uh, a lot of Borussia were impressive on the night. I, I don't know who else of you guys watched the game. Um, uh, Royce was really, really good. Brandt looked really good. Axel Witzel was really good. I was really impressed by him in the middle of the pitch. I think he outshone Kimmich as well for me, who went off injured unfortunately. But between them, I thought he was the more impressive midfielder. The one person I wasn't impressed with was actually Sancho, who looks like he's struggling to yeah to get um all of his cylinders firing this season. He does. He goes through that, doesn't he? he goes through like a bit of a rough patch, um, and it's like none of his dribblings are coming off and. Yeah, I th- I then uh, you, uh, generally the manager subs him and puts him on the bench for a couple of games, and then he comes back on as a as a um, impact sub, and then all of a sudden he's back in the first team and he's playing class again. Uh, I think that's his uh, his cycle of play in the last yeah, two, yeah. two seasons. Royce never needs warm up games. He just comes in. Oh my god! Yeah, instant adjustment, and he's with the pace of the game, and he dominates and it's leads. Like a cannon, man! You know what it's get, yeah. You know, you know what you're putting in and what it's coming out. Do you know what I mean? I think that's probably why <laughs> Dortmund fans and the club management have never lost faith with with uh, Royce, no matter how many injuries he's had, because every time he comes back, he can be relied upon to deliver. There's there's never a bedding in period of oh he needs to get his fitness back. Do you know mm-hmm. how some players who are absolutely amazing will come back and need like three or four yeah. games? Yeah, he's not one of them. He was really and, uh, good on the night. He's, he's only very unlucky in terms of his international profile. I mean, he couldn't make the 2014 World Cup, which would be a shoo-in for that squad. They go on to win it. He makes the 2018 selection and they get embarrassed. Yeah, it just seems crazy, like a, isn't it? Not quite a bad look, Brian, but definitely something where... If you uh, were a multi-million, uh, multi-millionaire footballer, you'd think that someone's out to get you, wouldn't you? I mean, like, <laughs> that kind of situation. <laughs> he's Mr. Dortmund, man. That's that's it. Yeah, you know he's he's the icon of Borussia Dortmund in this modern one day. Like Gorna didn't leave, right? Like, yeah, Goethe left. Yeah, Hummels side. left. Lewandowski left. Is this like an accepted thing? Like just Dortmund players will just leave for Bayern. Is that like the Anyone stepping stone? Bayern. Bayern, Bayern are like the top of the tree in that league. They'll get no, free transfers from. Bayern were Dortmund. Manchester United were twenty years ago. But is that like um, you know, like a. German folklore like oh Bayern comes knocking that's it you're gone do you know what I mean if you just look at it logically (laughs) it is what it is like how can you you know hold on to a player that you you know is coveting that team and that team is coveting him top of of the food chain aren't they yeah Yeah, that's the thing you know you can't do anything but just use them while you've got them I I mean Borussia know where they're they're at like you look at Haaland and his release clause they know they're not the elite of Europe they know that they are a stepping stone for that next you know, upper echelon of teams in Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich. But don't you think Dortmund for the last even decade have been wanting to become that team where actually, you know what, we, we, we don't want to be in the shadow of Bayern. We actually want to be our own giants. By the way, giants. D- Dortmund do that, by the way. They, they actually pick apart some of the best talents in the league, just not the Bayern ones. So yeah. they, they are like... This is the thing, they, that's yeah. what I don't Morgan get. Hazard, Brand, they, so many. Yeah. Have they got like an unspoken word between each other, like saying, you know, actually... You don't touch these players, and uh, if you put a good offer in for our players in the future, you know it's a given. It's a handshake or every any time of the day. To be honest, I think you'll see it in any leagues. The best clubs, will, there's there's a certain yeah. chain, and they, they'll pick apart the best players from the one below it, and then the next one. But it's so every, apparent every league, buying, it's No, but every more. league has it. Juventus yeah. have it. PSG have it. You go to bloody Scotland, Celtic bloody have it. Yeah, exactly. I think you're just almost sheltered by the Premier League bubble that you live in, where all teams are rich. But well, it's just it's compounded. Everyone liked to go Manchester United, didn't they? But the yeah. Manchester United are just crap. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't say that. We, we the, there's been plenty of signings where we we've been pipped to it, or the player wants to go. Like Hazard, we were so closely um, linked with Hazard. But for did he ages. sign him? Did he sign him? No, no you didn't. So, so don't talk the about the biggest example of that. 
a certain you know local lad, Alan Shearer, that your fans still cry about. Like yeah. didn't join. Wait, you know what Gaza Beautiful. did? Gaza said he was in sign for Manchester United. He was like, get lost, went to Spurs, happy days. Yeah, but. <laughs> Okay, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on to the next subject. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the next match we'll talk about, we'll go to the Mestalla, where Valencia, whose squad has been absolutely depleted over the summer, bad ownership decisions, they lost iconic players like Dani Perejo. Um, and, okay, who comes next? It's Real Madrid. How about a 4-1 win with three penalties? And it was one of the most bizarre matches I've seen in recent times, to be honest. I watched the full 90. And you couldn't really say that Valencia played to a level where a 4-1 victory is the final outcome. But at the same time, you cannot argue against each penalty. And uh, they just made, you know, they actually engineered those situations through their own graft as well. Real Madrid had an off night. The fans don't seem to be too happy with that pink kit. And uh, obviously they've got Hazard out with COVID and I believe uh, Casemiro as well. Um, Modric came in and he's been brilliant as an impact substitute. So it was interesting to say that they weren't even like kind of regained control of the midfield, even though he was in there. Yeah. And uh, I was largely impressed by Valencia, not not in terms of, oh, okay, this team is a Champions League contender or something like that, but just to be able to, despite all of those setbacks, all of those players lost, and come out 4-1 victors against Real Madrid, that is a massive statement for a club like that, to be able to pull off that result. Um, I mean, uh, what was your take on the game for them as someone else who watched it alongside me? Yeah, I mean, like you say, watch it together, and Brazil is probably the best way to describe that game. Like you say, 4-1 is flattering, at the same time, it's not because they, you know, three of those came through penalties, and you say three penalties. How? What was the ref doing? But then you look at the penalties themselves, and you think, all right, they're all penalties. Yeah. The fourth one came through a very uh, comical own goal, but once you remove that, like, um, you know, th- those comical aspects to the to the scoreline, Valencia were still the better team. Real Madrid started off quite uh, strongly in the first twenty minutes, but I think their lineup was actually just wrong, and you know, questions have been asked of Zidane. I think. Uh, rightfully so now because he seems to be he seemed to build up a reputation where he didn't fear phasing out old legends or like uh, benching players to give them the rest that they need when they get to a certain age and we saw that with Ronaldo how well he managed him in his last season but his uh, insistence on starting Marcelo I think cost him that game and the fact that he didn't um, uh address the situation that Casemiro didn't start. I thought the midfield with Modric and uh, Asensio was was not set up correctly. They didn't have that anchor man behind them. Both those yeah. didn't Wasn't have Wasn't Valverde supposed to be that anchor man though? Who? Valverde. Well, Valverde, not really. No, Valverde's a runner. He's, he's a, a runner. runner. He's a runner. Yeah. He's, not he's a box-box box midfielder, mate. Yeah. yeah. So without Casemiro, having Modric and Asensio aren't going to do much of the running. It just... It just uh, Allowed Valencia to like uh, push I mean, they, Real Madrid had their chances and they, they dominated the early exchanges as well. Yeah, the Benzema goal capped off dominating the first 20 minutes, they were great, yeah. yeah. But they didn't know how to reply. Do you think Madrid went. just got lazy, maybe? I don't know what it was. I just think it was one of those nights you can't explain. Yeah. Not, not as it wasn't as extreme as the seven-two against uh, Liverpool and Aston Villa, nah, but that was filthy though. But it had similar, it has a similar vibe to it where the team just loses and it almost feels you're powerless to prevent that defeat. Mm-hmm. Is it just you basically know? that the other manager got the tactics right? Basically, I mean, tactically, he, tactically it was okay. They honestly, Valencia went anything crazy, but in those moments where they attacked, they just somehow managed to rope the Real Madrid defense into making mistakes. Mm. Marcelo, I think, was a big example. Yeah, that's what I mean. He's one of my favorite players I've ever watched, Marcelo, yeah. over the years, and it's a sad. Can decline. I quickly ask you this? So, who yeah. do you prefer, Roberto Carlos or Marcelo? Because when I was young, Roberto Carlos was the guy for Brazil. So I can't see. I can't say Roberto Carlos and tell you that that's because I've watched him enough. Marcelo, I've watched the majority of his career. Roberto Carlos has a legendary mystique to him, where you saw that free kick against uh, France, for example. Mm-hmm. All those worldies that he scored, Galactico, 
World Cup winner. So yes, play for in in the Indian league as well. John, don't forget that. Oh, of yeah, course. So it. for me, it's like one against one against one. You probably could give it to Roberto Carlos, but I'll, based on what I've seen personally, it's Marcelo. Okay, obviously it's just an opinion. I was just yeah. quite curious. No, no, that's fine. I mean, it's, it's, it's good to have this kind of debate. You know, sure, people talk about who's better, Dani Alves or Kaku. Is that wrong? Sorry, just it's it's it's, uh, it's funny, isn't it? Like uh, Brazil have had two generations of world class fullbacks on both sides now, and uh, it was the, uh, Dani Alves and Kafu. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kafu is uh, great. Real Madrid and Barca as well. There's almost mm-hmm. been like a straight factory. Shame swap. Uh, in the 2014 World Cup they couldn't have the iconic striker for Ronaldo as Fred Lumbadon and couldn't really <laughs> so do much for them. Oh, but he was, he was good for good. Bo- he was good for Brazil anyways. That's why they kept him on. Didn't it was it? weird because um, you know the Confederations Cup in 2013. He was incredible yeah. in that tournament. Yeah, he was. Fast forward 12 months and he he was a joke. <laughs> I remember the three 0 like, where Spain. Beat Bra- well, Spain lost to Brazil with yeah. the David Luiz. Yeah. That was one of the best yeah. clearances off the line I've ever yeah. seen. It was filthy. <laughs> it's funny. But they're looking but good now, Brazil. Maybe we should do a international uh, episode. Will be coming week. soon. Yeah, when the international break's coming up, it's it seems like next a, week, a timely uh, situation yeah, for yeah, it yeah. now. But isn't that Rafael Varane's second own goal this season? Oh, he's been really. Uh, he's been he's really off cool. form. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the Real Madrid back line, even though wow. Ramos played, he just he wasn't enough apparently. I think it's like what was that, seven games said, and two on goals? Unexplainable, man. Yeah. If it happened on Halloween, you'd think someone else was going Yeah, to absolutely. Win. I mean, we'll, it'll be interesting to see how they do in the next match at Real Madrid. So we'll jump into our debate segment. And uh, the first one for debate today is something that the managers have been putting across lately about the ones who got involved in European fixtures saying they're not too happy about the kickoff times that they're getting on the weekend in lieu of what they're playing in the midweek. You know, not enough rest time, not enough prep time. So but my no. my question with this debate is, are these managers just acting a little bit spoiled because they've got the best squad depth or do they have a, a valid reason to make that argument to say but that the kickoff times need to be Jeff, adjusted? They're also uh, complaining about how the rest of the European League has five substitutes and the Premier League still didn't adopt the five substitutes yeah. and also p- piling on the pressure with you know, decreasing the amount of time and rest they have between the matches. Um, and I think they were especially irked because of it being such big games Um and I mean, to be honest with you, you never saw Klopp and Pep talking like they did on the pitch line. Uh, they probably shouldn't have talked that closely because of COVID. But I mean, and <laughs> what do we? Uh, but uh, I think, I think with the five substitutes, I definitely think we should adopt it. I I've actually quite liked um, uh, seeing more invigorated teams in the second half. But I understand why the smaller teams in the Premier League voted against it because they would have been steamrolled over in a lot of matches because the quality and depth that the prem- uh, the top six have, even the top seven have now, just w- you know wipes the floor with the bottom half of the table. But in terms of the, the timings of the matches, I don't even know if it's the Premier League that uh, decides it. I thought it was more to do with um, when... TV. BT- yeah, the TV... Yeah. Um, the TV list, rights, the TV rights yeah. and the listings for that. That I thought they had the biggest say in it. I'm not sure. I think uh, but your point about the smaller teams, even they're starting to change their tune now when they're realising how many players they're losing at muscle injuries. It's a bit of a joke, to be honest with you. I think uh, it's British exceptionalism at its finest. It's what got us Brexit and it's what's got us three substitutes. <laughs> it's like Guardiola said it best. Like We think we're special. It makes no sense. All the other European leagues, you know, they looked at it, it I don't want to even say logically because it's that simple. There's more games in a more congested, congested time frame. We need more substitutions, otherwise the players are going to die. I do think, though, that the protestations feel a little bit empty when he's talking about that they can't make five subs, but only makes one or two subs in the actual matches that he's playing. 
So you're telling me that the players are at high risk of injury, but you're not doing what you're in control of to mitigate that risk. It's just, and then you're making those complaints. I just, I, I lose respect in terms of that situation. I just, I don't really care. And all, to be honest, like you said, all small clubs will probably feel similar at the moment because at the end of the day, injuries are happening to everyone. No one's immune from that. And uh, the depth argument, to be honest, is uh, is pretty important because even a team like Everton, for example, you don't even have to go down to like US Broms and stuff like that. Everton lost four players against Newcastle due to injury and were absolutely a shadow of what they were doing at the start of the season. And now they're on three defeats on the bounce. So I, I do think that we're gearing towards a change back to the five substitutes. I just don't think that this big club-led argument is very good based on how they're also handed in their own squads. No, definitely. But it's a, it's a don't shoot the messenger type thing. They're the wrong people like bringing forward the message. But I think the message itself is still logical. Yeah, yeah I totally agree with that. Uh, just stick to one rule in Europe, you know, if if it's night, you're not gonna change the uh, time of game for that full ninety minutes and change uh, sixty minutes for that reason. You know, just keep one rule, one policy. If everyone in Europe's having five substitutes, stick to that. And Do you think they would we've got change one it? One more domestic competition than Europe, which already doesn't make sense. Yeah, I don't know. That yeah. makes no no, sense. I think I think the Premier League will change it. To be honest with you, they, they've got form for mid-season changes, like the handball rule. Where everyone was so sick of the ridiculous penalties at the very beginning, yeah. and now they've kind of made the threshold a little bit tighter. Uh, sorry, a bit harsher again. Um, and then, yeah, so I, I do think the five substitute rule will eventually come into, to come into effect in the Premier League uh, as well. I think we're all unanimous on that decision then. Just a case of when they For once. But do you think that five subs ruins the flow of a match? Is that too many substitutes? Uh, they um, could be made if they need to be. For I example, in... You know, in you're not uh, going to use a million pounds straight away, are you? You just use it when you need to use your money. No, what I mean is, sorry, so you're watching a spectacle, a 90-minute right. match, a competitive match. You're making three substitutes, but is the second half not going to feel too stop-start when you're making five substitutes in one half? And that's for both teams as well. So you feel like it's got a pre-season feel to it more A little like, bit, yeah. Less, like, yeah. you know, when in the friendlies, when they put the rolling subs on, there's no need to watch the match anymore because it's just about a fitness exercise. It's obviously there's a competitive edge to the match anyways, but it just feels like it's five subs. Well, uh, this is the many. thing I was saying before to Ali. I was saying, as a fan of your own team, would you not rather have the five subs and have more invigorated players that have more stamina, that can make more of an effect on the game? Or would you rather have the more, you know, open play version of a game where players are slightly more tired, more likely to make mistakes, more likely to even concede, do you know what I mean? Because they can't compete with the play, like you know the teams that have been training throughout the week, had plenty more rest. Obviously, in this case, it was Liverpool, Man City, but they were both... To, to be honest with you, I, I see what you're saying, but I like the fact that, let's say that Man City or Liverpool played three matches in a week, and they were up against, I don't know, um, a Burnley side that only had one match in eight days. I like the fact that it gives Burnley more of a chance to frustrate and get points out of that match. I think that rings true, though, more for the last couple of seasons. You see loads of these free uh, games. You see all the managers in the Premier League say um, that no match is easy. No match, uh, uh, the other team could not win. And I think partly that does play an effect into this. Yeah, because for me, like uh, Kevin De Bruyne at 30% is still better than Ashley Westwood at 110%. So uh, give give the Burnley's <laughs> a chance yeah, if they can take something from the, the game. Players should be the priority though. If the yeah. Man City players are like you know dying but halfway through, their the squads season. are big enough to rotate. So when, this is so the thing. Yeah, they're not three rotations yeah. per game or three substitutes per game. It won't even. No, happen. but like for but example, how many options does Pep have to call upon? Exactly. But then yeah. Pep is being stubborn because he knows he needs to win the match, yeah. right? So he needs to play his best players, and this is the problem. And this is what Jose Mourinho. Uh, has complained a few times where he's like oh I've lost all my players now I have to try to get this youth and he keeps blaming on the youth 
And then, uh, obviously, Pep, the way he's going on about it... Pep's a right weenie, man. Freaking hell. <laughs> well, you Are know, Klopp's of the same ilk, by the way? They're yeah, both fine. Yeah, I do agree to a certain extent with Klopp. Pep's worse. Have you seen what Klopp comes out with when he loses a match? Uh, he yeah. is one of the more bitter losers I've seen in the Premier League. But He'll that, blame everything. That, that helps him become the best, though, Him, isn't Daish, it? and Pep, probably, I would say the most. Yeah, Daish is hilarious. His players would be absolutely WWE moves on the opposition. And then he'd come out at the end of the game and say that they were the wrong party. There's something about that guy where he's in. I think he's doing it deliberately, to be honest. Yeah, I think he's he's just on the wind up, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, but so this is the thing. So, would would you would you rather have um, more tired players, open to more mistakes, and open to matches where you know you'd have an upset or more of an entertaining match because people mm. are making more sloppy mistakes. I don't know, making yeah. st- more stupid decisions. And personally, for me, I would want to see, and I don't know if you guys agree. I want to see the best players at their peak fitness playing 100% against another team that's at their peak fitness oh, at yeah, 100%. Because that is, personally for me, that's when you... Um, that's what the Premier League's all about. That's where you, yeah, that's where you uh, basically tr- uh, differentiate between the best teams to, you know, the second best teams. Um, and f- that's why I, I I would say yeah okay let five yeah. subs come in and let let's try and accommodate for the Europe um, the Champions League matches and the Europe Europa League matches during the week but then that might start causing a thing where I don't think it's I don't think we need to like worry about like the Premier League's job is not to protect the English teams uh, you know quality performance, quality performance yeah. in, in Europe. Oh, I, I, I think. No, the, why should the Premier League have to worry about it? It's the it's the it's business their model. Their business model is to try and increase as much viewership yeah, as they to can. Give favoritism to the top six just because they're in Europe. I, I, I think the, top, the that's one of the weaker arguments for the five substitutes. I think the players' health, what you mentioned, is probably yeah, the top exactly. argument. And also, yeah. you know, you mentioned like, is it a detriment to the flow of the game? But isn't lethargic, tired legs? Yeah, that's a that's a very good account. I completely disagree because the the reason why the Premier League was founded in the first place, and now obviously all this talk about the European Super League, um, that's going to come about with all the top six teams uh, fighting against obviously the uh, Serie A, La Liga, um, and you know or the why Bundesliga. Is that the no, no. So the so the Premier League has been in discussions with um, actually forming something along the lines of that. And the reason why they made it into a tier system was because of that and that's why we have the Premier League as it is now because of the precipice of that idea of having um, the best clubs in one league where more people are, uh, are most likely to watch it and more revenue more income more TV bro- uh, broadcasting throughout the world and obviously they're they're not opposed I'm pretty sure they're not opposed to this European Super League if it's more, coming more into their pocket motive for the Premier League like an alter you know uh, an ulterior motive, so to speak. I'm saying from a sporting, sportsmanship, you know, sporting competitiveness point of view, it shouldn't be the Premier League's responsibility to step in, look at Burnley and say, well, we have to favour this team because they have more games and, more, and they need to win more. Like, that should not be the Premier League yeah. goal whatsoever. Yeah, the priority should be the players' health. You remember, like, after after they've retired, what's, what's going to happen to them? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I could see them just saying a, a valid argument saying, well, you know, you've got, this, you've got the squad size, why don't you use them? Why don't you use your homegrown players that we're trying to increase and yeah. try and make the English game better? That's what they're saying, they're trying to, to be honest, guys, only got three subs again. Very interesting debate because I think as much as different viewpoints came across, we're all landing on the same kind of conclusion with the players' health being the priority, so I quite like that. Uh, you don't usually get that in a debate, so we'll move on to the second one and we'll see how that one turns out. Now, Aston Villa's 3-0 win, which we touched on earlier, one of the more impressive players in that match was Ross Barkley. 
He's been a much maligned figure in his career. I mean, he's an England international, a boyhood Everton player, and you know he came through the ranks and started really well with them. Made a big money move to Chelsea, where inconsistency is starting to hit. So, what is the true level of Ross Barkley? Um, is he this player that can move his game even further with Aston Villa, or do you think that inconsistencies will always plague him as a player? Well, he really forced that move, didn't he, to Chelsea? Yeah, it was 15 million. It wasn't really much of a big move, let's be honest. Well, it was a big move for him, uh, considering his age and everything. But how good is Ross Barkley? Like, I, th- I think that forced move has actually put perspective that actually, you know what, I'm not, even, I'm not that good, and I need to up my game. And it, you know, he's he, well, he's uh, he's played under two managers now, um, possibly three. But did uh, Conte, Conte sign him? Signed him, yeah. Yeah, so three managers. Do you know what I mean? And he hasn't been a regular starter for any of the three of them. He hasn't really impressed for any three of them. I know, um, Sari tried to implement him into his system a lot more with Sari Ball, but he just. You know, he's just not that type of player. He couldn't. He couldn't have the technical ability yeah. to even compete with Do you think the likes of Jorginho or Kovacic. He's more of a big fish, small pond player. And yeah. that's the thing. Yeah. So that's why I'm getting. At. And I think his move to Aston Villa has basically put into his perspective uh, what kind of player he is. The resurrection. He's been revived, man. So I think when when I read about him, one of the things that always uh, comes across is people saying he doesn't really have a good football IQ. Like he's got the athleticism, he's got the physicality, and he's got technical qualities but he's always making the wrong decisions. But when I saw the way he set up the first Aston Villa goal, I know it was an ogle by Saka, but that reverse pass by Barkley, that's, that's a sign of clever IQ. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I think technically, like if you look at it from sort of the football manager play stats lens, you know, just to dumb it down for ourselves a bit, like his technical attributes have always been, you know, well, highly regarded and we always knew he's got like a, sh- a good shot in him, a good pass in him, he can drive the ball. But his mental stats, sort of like his composure, his decision making, it's never been his his uh, strong suit. So do you not think it makes sense now that he's gone from a champion, a team with league t- like winner aspirations, to a team like Aston Villa who are happy just to stay in the league last season? That now that that pressure's off, he's also shining because. He, he just couldn't cope with the pressure. It's again that mental side of his game that has. Maybe he needed to take a step back. Yeah. With his career, uh, it's happened with many players before. If you look at Danny Ings, obviously his happened with injuries when he went to Liverpool. But he took a step back to Southampton. He's arguably one of the best strikers. Yeah, in the league Danny right Ings, now. great example. And yeah. I think another one is Memphis Depay, who made yeah. the money to move big money to Man United. Goes to Leon as a team uh, team leader, star player, and now linked with Barcelona again. I d- actually, to be honest. Those redemptive stories of a player who goes to a big club too early and struggles goes to you say middle level club, not necessarily like a lower division club. Yeah, it's not a bad club. But another yeah. example is Mohamed Salah. He went to st- yeah. he went to Chelsea initially. He was actually meant to go to Liverpool. Jose Mourinho obviously snuck in there, brought me to Chelsea. <laughs> Chelsea and is the club that happens. At yeah, him. Ross Barkley is like almost different because he wasn't part of that loan. No, army, but, but it's also the same thing. But it's happened with Salah, Lukaku, De Bruyne. You know, it's happened to Chelsea many times. But like you say, Salah went to Fiorentina for for a loan. They went to Roma for a permanent. Came to Liverpool and look what he's doing. People think he's overrated, but he's scoring goals for fun. Uh, but you know, oh, I think as a footballer, man. you'd want more first time, um, first team uh, uh, minutes. Like really. I, I personally. Not always. I, I would, I would want to play yeah, football in the first team. The not, paycheck. not be. Um, well, this is the thing. You, you, obviously, we're talking about paychecks. I would say the longevity of a footballer is playing as many minutes as you can and being in the first team and being in the action. How else are you going to develop? How else are you going to grow? How else are you going to sell yourself to other big teams? I think the, the only position that it suits to just be a big team is your third-choice goalkeeper. What a cushy life that oh, is. Yeah. Yeah, you, you just find a contract. If, um, if like, the for Schwartz? example, Man City, you've got Scott Carson. Yeah. Scott yeah. Carson. 
Is Schwartz still there? Um, he's also won a Champions League with Liverpool. Has he? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember he's at, yeah, he was at Liverpool. He was a second keeper for a while. Istanbul 2005. Never forget the day. Yeah. <laughs> he's been around that long, man. I don't even think I've ever seen him play. And yeah. I even remember Kudicini as well. And then he was really unlucky. Uh, and then Hilario uh, was the Chelsea first team starter for quite a few matches. This is talking a very long time ago. Yeah. Uh, I think it was probably 2006, 2007. But yeah, it was um, Czech was injured. Carlos uh, Curicini came on. He was injured. And then Hilario came on out of nowhere. And he made a bit of a name himself as well. Yeah. But then he was never heard of again. Now, uh, <laughs> I just wanted to mention yeah. something. Sorry for you. You said you, you talked about those redemption knocks in football. Barkley hasn't. He's yeah, he's playing well and like people are starting to appreciate him again as a footballer. But his redemption, really, his arc only ends when he's back at a top six club. Really, wouldn't you say? No, do you think I, he I do agree. Do you no, think he has that in him, or do you think where he's at now he'll stay at? I see what you mean, but I actually think what he, what what uh, sorry what Ali mentioned with Danny Ings is a better example of a redemption arc because yeah. Danny Ings is performing well for Southampton. They're not a top six club, but nobody could dispute how quality Danny Ings has been lately because yeah. he's been he's been showing this one for a year. So I think. Also, the Premier League is so watched and I think the general team level quality is so good that shining in a team like Aston Villa is good enough for people to rate you again. You remember Aston Villa is a European club. They've won the Champions League before. Yeah. Uh, well, well, not not anywhere, you know, anytime soon. But Look, I, I they've think got it's more Champions League than no, no. Arsenal and Spurs I, put together. I think, so it's the tactics. I think it's the tactics. I purely think that in those big to- top six teams, their tactics are there to win the league. To be part of that tactic tactical setup you can't be inconsistent you can't be inconsistent and with this other type of setup where you have outside of top six where you play um quite attractive football but it doesn't always work out um look sheffield united last year do you know what i mean that actually suits players like danny Ings, like Ro- ross barkley and actually complements what they want to do with these that, technical no, setups that's that's wrong you know why danny Ings could have done well at liverpool he had to come back from two horrible injuries just remember that no, i agree with that because for example any, any mistake that ross barkley makes in a villa shirt is not going to be under the microscope the same way a mistake he does in a chelsea shirt will be so yeah there's definitely truth i, to I agree to you a certain extent of that at the yeah same time, if yeah. you ask danny Ings and if you ask ross barkley would you rather be playing this well for Aston Villa, or would you rather be playing this well for Chelsea? Oh, Which yeah. They say. No, obviously, obviously Chelsea no, no, still be at a higher level. That's true, but that's not the question. I think the question is, would you rather be playing this well for Aston Villa or be a role player at Chelsea where right, but you're I'm not saying, playing that well? Do you reckon now that he's taken that step back, he can go, you know, um, he's 26 now, so he's probably not going to be making any move to it unless he plays insanely well. But he's not going to outshine Greenwich in that team. But say, like, you know, Chelsea pick him back up. Because he's, he's not, he's, it's a full transfer, isn't it? It's not a loan. No, no it's, it's a loan. It's a loan. So, yeah. like, say he goes back to Chelsea and they say, like, you played well, we want to yeah. keep you. I mean, I'll answer Do that question. Do you reckon he has that in him yeah. to apply himself? And the thing is, is he going to fit that Chelsea squad, though? Look him yeah. out of uh, attacking depth they've got right now. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think he ever will be. But then I'll answer that question that you said using the examples I've already discussed. Because with Mohamed Salah, he was young enough to struggle at Chelsea, go to Fiorentina and Roma and do his thing, and then come back and, you know, assume a superstar role at Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool. Whereas, for example, Danny Ings, he's he's still young enough in terms of he's at his peak, but there's no pressure on him to make another big money move. And I think it, it's nice to see him being a star player at a mid-table to higher aspiring uh, Premier League club. So I think if Ross Barkley's traje- trajectory ends up him being a star player at a team similar to Aston Villa, I think that's fine. I don't think he needs to go back to a big club in, in our China and you know dominate the same with Asala. But I don't think well, he needs to. Well, my point was, do you reckon he could? Like, do you reckon his level now? I don't think he's good enough. Yeah, that's I that's don't what I'm trying to ask. Enough. I think with um, Sancho, sorry, Sanchez, uh, 
he couldn't break into the Barcelona first team for ages. Alexis, Alexis. Alexis. That's not true. So. No, because come he, on, bro. He 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 couldn't like secure his p- position as a forefront. I mean, he was playing second fiddle to Pedro for a while, but this is the thing. Um, yeah, but Pedro fitted the system long. for Guardiola, oh, though. Well, well, this is this is what I'm trying to Alexis say. Alexis had plenty of games for. He, he started classicals and everything. Uh, let me, reason, let me get reason why he moved to Arsenal was because he he couldn't just sec- he couldn't secure his plans um, as part of the plans of what Barcelona wanted, and initially when he came on from Udinese, it looked like he was. You know he's gonna absolutely blow blow the water, uh, park out of um, uh, how Barcelona are playing, I and he's to gonna be, be very very explosive. Just Sorry. looking at Alexis Sanchez's stats, um, his three seasons, uh, twenty five league starts, twenty nine league starts, and his last season was thirty four league starts. So if anything, the end of his reign, he'd already secured a spot. He was playing more than at the very beginning. I think wasn't that just before they wanted, like yeah. they decided to shift to bring Neymar in, right? So they had a look and said, Sanchez, yeah, oh, that, yeah, was it. Was. that was it. That was it. Yeah. He was great, but he was never going to They just be, upgraded him. Yeah, uh, that yeah. was the same time when Alexis pied Liverpool off for Arsenal as well. I remember that. But yeah, he pied him <laughs> off. That uh, time was a good decision. No, no, but he pied them off for Arsenal and he absolutely changed the way he played and how he, how he led, you know, the whole Arsenal team for certain matches. He was the pivotal point, man. He was like the actual... Yeah, but he was never like... He never needed that rebound. He ne- he was always at a high. He wasn't level. a crap player, just so to let I you think, know. I yeah. think my point with Sanchez is that he he came in. He went to a slightly bigger, uh, slightly less bigger club, uh, with slightly less aspirations in terms of Champions League and that consistency. Um, yet he shined in that tactical setup at that was, time. Was the catalyst though, or was it just you know he learned his you know he applied his trade at Barcelona. He's he's a better player, more experienced, and he came to Arsenal heading into his prime, and that was why he... And then he went to Manchester way. United and fucked up. I don't understand that. <laughs> Manchester United, um, Man, first day... too busy playing the piano f- still. First day rang this uh, agent and wanted to rip up his contract. Yeah. Come on, that's that's fabricated. It must be highly fabricated or... I just thought he was joining City, you know? <laughs> and then he realised. Well, no, he, he, he rejected <laughs> City for Man United. Uh, yeah. Money talks. Yeah. That was a fantastic decision by uh, Alexis Sanchez in the end. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that concludes the Ross Barkley debate. And uh, I do want to end it on a little bit of a lighthearted note, lads. Um, we saw what happened to Adam Ola-Luckman this weekend. And we saw what happened to Kieran Tina this weekend. Yeah. Which was the more embarrassing moment to you? Without a shadow of that Luckman. Luckman, man. Luckman. Oh, I have lost so hard. Kieran Tina, either way. I think... You know, he did a break like, dance man in the middle of the pitch on uh, like as the moment happened you know and I was doing all the round on the socials I watched it I cringed and then I watched match of the day the next morning because I didn't catch it on the night I cringed and I watched it again and then I saw it again when uh, Jaffa was watching it on match of the day when he was watching it I saw it again I cringed again like yeah. I, every time I see man, it I just can't he's like, such an idiot it seemed like he tried something new like he People practice their... Uh, That's what should have been done. He yeah, should have practiced should have a thousand pra- times. It a thousand times and then try it. It looked like he did it for the first time. <laughs> it was it was Scott horrible. Scott Parker was fuming. Well, I wonder how many times he practiced that in his back garden during lockdown and thinking, I'm going to have my moment. <laughs> the penalty. penalty. <laughs> but not not for a draw, man. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. He, if you're like, that's not the time. Definitely. Especially when you're, you're at a team like Fulham. Also, this was his first professional uh, penalty, by the way. Sorry, in his se- senior career as well. Like, what a way oh, to start man. that. Yeah, I, I agree. For for a team like Fulham, uh, they need every, every single point. point they can yeah. get. That's the, that's the thing. And look, the first time me and you are agreeing right now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what it is though? I, I actually will. Uh, he he's got bollocks. Like, 
I mean, to be doing that in the 96th minute, like, fair fucks to you, man. I think he was I mean, already, he was already thinking have... about his Instagram caption, wasn't he, when he was lining yeah, up exactly. the penalty? Yeah, loads of people have bollocks, but do they have the proper mind frame to use them no, properly? Do you know what I mean? Man, his bollocks are getting chopped off by Scott Parker at all, aren't they? <laughs> Freaking hell, man. No, but say he does that, it goes in. Everyone's talking about, like, like the nerve on him, like ice through his veins. I now you, you now what people are talking about him right now? Exactly. What if there's no in between with the Penenka though. You're either the shittest player on the planet, or you're like the best next, like the next best thing since. I really thought he was the next coming of Pirlo. Let's be honest, he actually thought he was. <laughs> Who is there another player in recent times that's failed at their Penenka? I mean, it happens from time that, to time, yeah. yeah. But well, not that bad. Know, in a manner like that, that's that was the uniqueness of it. It's just how the fact that the West Ham keeper committed and still was able to pick Sit, it up, oh my as God. if it was a it child. Was so like, slow motion. Like, yeah. do you know when um, when you see those videos of parents letting their kids shoot a penalty and then diving over the ball to give them the little, oh, you scored yeah, a goal. Yeah, yeah. I felt like the West Ham keeper was like, okay, I did that, but I'm just gonna catch it anyways. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was that embarrassing. But I actually yeah, disagree with the answer. You know, I thought the Tierney moment was more embarrassing. Really? Because. At some point down the line, <laughs> Lookman will have a penalty that he'll uh, score and he'll be laughing about it and put like the cheeky smile emojis. No one is ever gonna give Tini that moment back. <laughs> you felt like you felt like a, a newborn baby giraffe. And uh, like the way he fell down in stages, it was like phase one, phase two, <laughs> phase three, yeah. tripping over himself. I think the only way, you know how the theme of the podcast has been a bit about redemptive box? The only way he could have a redemptive box if he's he parkoured across the Emirates Stadium. <laughs> you know, oh, look at him doing brilliant jumps. Oh that, to me, the TNE moment is more embarrassing than the Ruckman moment. I'm, I'm still on a football pitch since Podgers yeah. answered the FA Cup. A hundred percent. I'm, still, I'm trying, still trying to work out what he was trying to do. Was he trying to put uh, you know, put his leg over it, make it look like he's passing it back to the keeper, but he's not, but then he, he messes up and then he tries I to... He, he tripped himself up. No, like how do you? Yeah, do like that? twice. Yeah, same motion before he, he he tripped up, then mid trip he was like DJ Khaled, another one. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how he managed to do that. It was impressive in its own way, to be honest. Honestly, being in his group chat right now, can you imagine how, oh how much his teammates are rinsing him? God, I can imagine they made memes on him already, man. It's like, a group yeah. icon. It's the gifts are flying. Yeah. <laughs> this is, oh my no god. Like you say. So we'll see what the international break has to give us because it was definitely a very entertaining weekend of domestic football. Thanks a lot for joining us on the podcast, lads. Don't forget to check out the socials. You've got the Twitter and Instagram at The Dressing Room 9 and the YouTube channel, Just The Dressing Room. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Yeah, we're also uh, are on all the major uh, platforms for podcasts, so Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Um, so, yeah, give us a rating as well um, on the ones that you can give. I know Stitcher you can. So yeah, and we'll be hopefully be posting, well, hopefully once weekly. But well, thank you. We'll see you again. Thanks, guys. Have a nice day. Thank you.